All right. Hey, everybody. Thanks uh, for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of the Dimension Fold uh, channel, podcast, whatever the, these things are called nowadays. And um, today I've got a uh, guest, Ari. I didn't even catch your last name, Ari. What's your last name? So my last name is Aileen. It doesn't sound anything like it's spelled. So uh, the fact that you didn't try is probably better. <laughs> oh, okay. What is it like Celtic or something? Yeah, it's actually is a it's a Gaelic name. From what I understand, it it means noble. If I if I read the internet correctly, uh, but that's yeah. that is why it doesn't it doesn't sound or look like what it spells. Yeah, right on. I, I've got a lot of Scottish family, and they're like the I can't spell their names either. It's like crazy <laughs> stuff, but yeah, it's all good. Uh, so welcome, Ari. Um, uh, so today, Ari's here to tell us about a project that he's working on that he's. He's got um, up on the old uh, Kickstarters. And um, so maybe before we get into that, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Ari. So my name is Ari Aileen, and I am a, amongst my many hats, I have the funny hat, and that is the living history and reenactment of the medieval era. So my personal reenactment expertise for what that is, is like late 14th century, early 15th century. Think of like circa the Battle of Agincourt, a uh, hundred year war kind of thing. And that's sort of where I, I center my living history around. However, obviously the medieval refers to a millennia. And so I tend to spend a lot of time talking with people from eras that you would consider more like the Crusader. And, and there's like late Iron Age, post, post-Roman, but not quite almost not even medieval yet and then there's especially in the armor community you know we think about like the medieval armor the jousters tend to lean a lot more towards like borderline 16th century diehard 15th century people so i kind of have a foot in a lot of different time periods without necessarily having a bunch of different impressions myself right okay well that's cool well do i mean do do people like does it make a difference in terms of if you're uh if you're larping like what's the difference is it different clothing different weapons so that conversation in and of itself is one that i've probably spent countless episodes of of other podcasts talking about specifically that issue the the what is reenactment versus what is larp versus what is cosplay yeah. i mean okay sorry i i ruled yeah. everything into one no and that's okay and that's actually kind of funny because realistically if you really want to go and look at it from the macro view and this this commentary chaps all sorts of hides is that LARP is just a, or reenactment is just the term for LARPing before we had the term LARP <laughs> and uh, reenacting is what we called cosplaying before we called it cosplaying, except most people in reenactment are cosplaying a, a time period of history. Whereas most cosplayers are trying to faithfully reenact effectively something from a movie or other popular television. So if you think about like right. the 501st, they are technically you know, new hope reenactors, if you really wanted to call it that way. And in, yeah. in the other way, you could say that my living history impression is just a historical cosplay. And so the, the terminology divides us more than it necessarily needs to. However, most LARPs tend to add stories that are ahistorical to them. So they might be based in historical facts, but the story that they're actually acting out at an event is generally fiction. Whereas a reenactment, when you think about the the diehard reenactors, 
when they're doing a battle or an event, they're trying to faithfully reproduce the events as it happened in history. So there's a right. lot less creative license, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but that's where it goes. But I mean, really, it's all just different ways of dressing up funny. So. Yeah, no, that's uh, I'm, I'm glad I like how you explain that. And that totally makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I don't have a ton of experience with any of those things, although uh, maybe a little bit. Um, so um, I guess let's talk about your project. So okay. uh, you've got a Kickstarter campaign happening right now. Uh, I'll put a link to it underneath this video. Um, and kind of one of one of my hopes is that uh, is that our viewers will uh, will be able to support you in that because it's from what I've seen, your project sounds really cool. Um, so why don't you tell us about it? So the project as a whole, like, is called Dinthwaite Medieval Village, and the idea is to create a middle a medieval village that's specifically for reenactment and living history, and I guess to that extent, historical LARPs. Uh, it's not meant to be an attraction or like an open air museum or anything like that. It's designed, the idea is to be a venue specifically for engaging in exploration of historical topics, historical skills in an actual environment that resembles the villages that you would actually be from. So when you think about, okay, I can put on all the, the correct regalia and I can have a period accurate tools, but I'm still parading around in a convention hall or a high school gymnasium, or I have to like ignore the park benches at the local park. Like there's a lot of things where, you know, you feel really immersed until the Frisbee golfers <laughs> sail their stuff over the top <laughs> of your head in an encampment. Right. Yeah. And so the idea is to remove all those non-medieval elements because in America, I mean, what Western history is only a couple hundred years old. The most castly <clears throat> things we get are, uh, on the on the West Coast, you get a lot of like the missions were built, you know, with old school kind of aesthetics in mind. Uh, but even then, you, you you go and you think of here in Kansas, where I live, there was a 17th century, 18th century fort. And that's I mean, that was a, a wooden palisade fort. And I mean, it, it has long since been salvaged and torn apart and and rotted away to the to the extent where we actually don't have a good idea exactly where even the fort actually was like we we can have an idea of where it might have been like oh we think it's on this guy's property but there's nothing left of it whereas in in england and in france and germany they have like you know actual castles and and leftover medieval villages that never got torn down or only marginally rebuilt and so the living history scene overseas has this incredible advantage in that your backdrop can be as effectively as accurate as your clothing can be. But here in the US, your clothing will all, almost always be more accurate than the place you happen to be reenacting in, with the exception of, say, like it's nighttime and you can only see as far as the firelight. Like, yeah, that's 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 got that whole time travel feel to it. But we don't get to go into a castle and do that. And even overseas, even in Europe, most of the castles are either surrounded by a modern town, like the actual people who live around it, or they don't necessarily have medieval interior spaces. A lot of old castles have been redecorated and rebuilt on the inside. And then 
a lot of them are ruins, you know, and most people didn't spend their lives living in a ruin. They lived in a new or modern castle, yeah, modern for the 13th yeah. or 14th century, so to speak. And the idea is to bring all those things and say, okay, these are all these impediments to good living history and good reenactment. Heck, it's, it's an impediment to just having really cool photos. But when you're really trying to say, I want to break down and, and feel what it was like to do this medieval exercise the way that the medieval counterpart I'm trying to pretend to be would have done it having the backdrop and the the correct environment is important and i want to be able to bring that to our community and so that's what the dinthwaite medieval village is going to be and so right now the kickstarter is for the foundations so i went through and surveyed as well as i could with what people were willing to tell me and what i could find online uh all the different ways in which people have tried to do something similar to this in the past uh, how they have succeeded and predominantly the ways that in which they have failed. And I'm trying to bring a project that specifically addresses some of the foibles of previous projects so that we can have one that's successful and enduring. And most yeah, importantly, so, I want sorry. Is yeah, are ahead. there any that like are there any in, in existence that, that didn't fold up? Not in the way that I am presenting here. There are mm. there are areas that are venue specific wherein they they cater to living history for like okay well if your troop wants to come and do an event this weekend you can buy the location for the weekend i guess rent it rent but it. they also do you're also competing with wedding venues and you're competing with school trips and you're competing with massive larps and and when i say massive larps i'm talking about more like the amped guard that are kind of they're more fantasy based. There's a lot of mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of LARP out there that has medieval set dressings as kind of an aesthetic key to it, but they're not medieval history based. Right. And so, it's more like D and D or something like that. Where it's exactly like, yeah. it is. Uh, it's actually more like if you've ever played it, um, werewolves or vampires, the masquerade, where you're okay. kind of it. It takes a lot of the dice rolling out, and and it's a lot more of that experiential improv role playing is what most of those fantasy larps are and even some of the the vaguely historical larps are that way too but we have a lot of sites we don't even have a lot we have a couple of those and most of them are just either one building or they're an open field dedicated to our kind of stuff but they're not right. an entire village with a lot of the trappings that you would expect you know when i think of a medieval village i think of paths i think of not just cottages, but cottages built in the Tofton Croft method, wherein you have the massage and the gardens around it. You have bridges, wells, outbuildings, workshops, the commons, all the kind of the sundry buildings that you would expect in an active working village. And we have had a couple castle projects in the past, like there's one going right now, Castle Tigris over on the West Coast. And we had the... Ozark Fortress, which was a redo, redo, kind of a, not a redo, but it was an exact replica of a successful castle project called Castle Guidelon in France. And, but those both have different aims than the living history community. And what I want the living history community to be able to do is to do long-term experimental archaeology projects and to not have to compete with modern clientele to be able to do their immersive activities. So I want people to be able to, to uh, I don't know how, how how much you experience you have with the military, but like the in the army, some bases used to have a the MWR would ha have a shop. It had all the tools, had the lifts, it had everything, and and for little to no cost, the soldier could take their car in and work on it. 
And, you, know, you think about catering to people in the barracks. They want to work on their cars, but no one can bring a, <laughs> a tool chest with them from duty station yeah. to duty station. Right. And so you think about the workshop. Well, there's a lot of people who would love to do medieval craft, but they can't fit that kind of tool or equipment into their apartment or the, the zoning doesn't let them have yeah. forges and things like that. So if right. you could have, right. the I workshop, got a lot of friends actually who are into forging, forging. Stuff. Absolutely. It's like, but it is you noisy know, and, and yeah. it's dirty. And exactly. a lot of if you live in room. the city, what are you going to do? Right. Like, well, the idea is that you could drive out to Dinthwaite and then instead of going, Oh, well, sorry, there's a wedding or, Oh, sorry, there's a school group or sorry that we have open hours. You can go. And the idea is when you pass the gate, the site is an immersion of a site. So you bring, you come in and you get to, to wear your medieval clothes and you get to go work in the workshop or say you want to grow a, uh, a heritage breed of flax because you want to do some experiment on uh, flax and fiber and you want to go from crop to production. Well, where are you going to find an acre of land that you can till well, uh, the idea is that there's land there. Why, why shouldn't you have the opportunity to do that kind of stuff? And so I want to go beyond just the weekend event and create a site that is dedicated 24-7 to the living history experience. And that's right. one of so the you, major you're ways. You're actually going to be diving into the cultural anthropo anthropology of things and absolutely terms of how it worked, how, what it was like to, to live in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, I suppose a lot of that stuff is well documented. Um, do you do you think that there's room for uh, like new discoveries in terms of um, things that we yet don't yet know about what what things were like back then? Absolutely, and we actually have some of our favorite pet examples of how this has worked in the past. So this isn't <clears throat> the, one of the reasons that I haven't necessarily had as much traction with academic institutions as I thought I might have was that this isn't like you said, a lot of this research isn't, you know, there aren't a lot of candidates out there that are doing their dissertation in such a way that they need to live in a medieval village for six months. However, there is, uh, and I wish I could remember the name of the device, but there was an object, a Roman artifact that was found and it was this kind of um, this ball with knobs on it and it had like, uh, it was shaped a lot like a D20 and it had these holes in oh, it. And it yeah, was yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that turn, turns out to have stumped all the academics for decades as to what it was. And then a Roman reenactor who was like, oh, we use that for knitting this particular type of Roman garment. And they're like, really? And they, yeah. And so just someone who sat there and goes, all right, this is what I do because I want to do it with my hands. I want to learn it. I want to live it was able to be like, oh, yeah, obviously, it, as if you had gone back to some Roman village and said, Hey, uh, what is this? And some lady was like, uh, I use it every day. It's this thing. And yeah. so I think that those types of advancements, uh, we don't even know what's out there that we don't know because we haven't had enough time to allow people to steep themselves in that type of physical time travel. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, um, technology ages and it's, it becomes obsolete and it gets thrown away and it gets forgotten about mm -hmm. like, um, you know, in, in a hundred years, is anybody going to remember how to, uh, how to, how to code uh visual basic say or whatever, right? Like, I mean, I hope not. If we still have to use basic <laughs> in a hundred years, I hope not too. <laughs> but I, you know, I've, I've experienced that myself and I did before I got into medieval living history, I actually did professional interpreting of 
19th century maritime. I did uh, 1830s, the high trade to and from. You know, the, the idea was that you're talking about the high trade to and from California to Boston. And it, it keyed into local social studies and history of Dana Point area. But there were they had these historically rigged, accurate tall ships that were, you know, they were built to spec. I mean, one of them was built to a Smithsonian blueprint for ships that they were building in the cutter service. And so there were lots of things that, you know, you look at it and you go, I would never have figured out how to do that if I didn't have some old salty sailor tell me that's is what this is what it's for and how you make it work. And so, yeah, there's, you know, so many tools lost time. I think there's a, uh, there's a really entertaining Reddit that what is this thing or how does this thing work? And pictures of, of, you know, can openers from 1910 that were just like these, steampunk you know ratchet and and cog monstrosities but like you know if you don't know you don't know yeah well that's cool i i mean it's it's pretty amazing to think about like how even that that ship example that you just gave like those guys would have had to sail all the way or down underneath south america right Mm -hmm. around cape horn one of the most dangerous parts of the journey yeah yeah it's it's wild to think about you know how the Panama Canal changed the world in such a huge way. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a ditch, um, and yet the the difference <laughs> is is gigantic. And yeah. then you know the same thing last year when there or whenever it was a couple of years ago, when the uh, the Suez Canal got blocked up, and ah the world was just like came st- to a stopped. grinding halt. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's I pretty think amazing. We're still, we're still trying to get caught up from that. I've got suppliers, um, even as a couple of months, a couple of months ago, I was talking to a supplier and they were still couldn't get stuff because of the backlog from, from that. And that was what, two years ago, I think. Yeah. I'm, I've worked with, I've, I've been in situations where I've had to deal with trains that were stopped. Uh, and I was talking with one of the agents, the BNO agents that they have their own police service and uh he was saying that for every hour that we kept that train stopped it cost just his company over a hundred thousand dollars in just the time and labor it takes to reroute other trains deal with all of the things that were supposed to be there and now aren't the time loss for people who showed up to work and there was no stuff to offload like he said it could cost upwards of a hundred thousand dollars per hour for every time we have a freight train stopped for some reason that it's not meant to be stopped for wow yeah. mm-hmm. it's okay so what would that have looked like in medieval times is uh, there an equivalent to that to trains and such i mean so, it's obviously not going to be the same but like what would be the worst case scenario in uh, logistics and shipping in medieval times so that really depends on which period of time you're talking about the the farther you get forward in time the better logistics become uh, because you you have more and more roads built because you had this major downfall where you had all these roman roads and then there wasn't a lot of road building for a number of centuries and then we started building roads up again but then you see technological advances in ships where you're going from cogs to uh, cavalier type uh, ships and so when you think of things like there's like the silk road and and where you're going coming from so there was a lot more trade between countries on the continent than back and forth between england however england itself was had like one of the premier wool out uh its exports was wool so a huge wool industry now the villages themselves were 
much more self-contained. So you had a lot of these satellite communities that were very self-sufficient. The, they would predominantly use what they grew. Uh, they would in, they wouldn't import as much. A lot of people would make things on in town. So you'd have these these very self-sufficient little communities where they pretty much provided for themselves the majority of it. And a lot of times what you do is instead of trade, you'd actually travel to where you needed to get things from. So for instance, when the king would would go and get his tithe from all of his lords, you know, they owed him you know, the, the, the feudal system, it, it was based not a lot in cash, but in goods. So you owed a specific percentage of your crops. Well, instead of mailing the crops to him or shipping it to him, he would actually just tour the country and he would hang out in your castle for a while and eat up his share. <laughs> and then he'd move on to the next one. And so it actually didn't look a lot like it did today. Obviously there was shipping, there was merchanting, uh, but the idea of like the, the caravan of merchants going from city to city is a little fantasy based in a kernel of truth. And you don't really get major import export until you start to, to have the really large ships that it, uh, and you think about the, the, the early end of the golden age of sale. This is when you're talking about exploring the new world, the, the Renaissance, a lot of these things picked up past the 15th century uh, but obviously there was trade but there wasn't much in the way of like a dedicated trade route wherein oh if if this cart gets stopped then you know there's this big knock-on effect because a lot of with the exception of the cities which were so urban they didn't necessarily have the cropland to support themselves and they would import from the countryside the majority of medieval towns especially in england and you think about the low countries of france and such were fairly self-sufficient and then the like the city states of Italy and the principalities of of Italy that you know at the time, especially like German and Germany and the Holy Roman Empire, places that we think of as consolidated countries today, and at the time were very much a disparate group of city states and small fiefdoms, and they weren't all as homogenous as we'd like to paint them nowadays. Uh, they would trade in and amongst themselves, but not this global, we rely on everything to pop in from the outside and if it doesn't, we're, we're hosed. That didn't really mm. manifest that early. Right. Which is kind of a nice way of living in, in a way. I mean, eventually we'll have to get back to it because we'll be forced to, right? Like, I think, I mean, I don't think that our current uh, uh, technology-based uh, global logistics is ultimately um, sustainable in the in a in a long run or at least in a uh, it's, it can't go on forever something's no. gonna gonna break down at some point and people um, are getting much more down to earth if if TikTok is any indication you know the <laughs> the chicken coop and vermiculture bu bucket are the new BMW right people are yeah. putting a lot more stock in being you know, I think there was a lot of the joke is that, oh, well, during COVID, we were all medieval peasants. We just stayed at home and baked bread. Like, I think there's a lot of people who who got connected to, you know, being able to do some things for themselves and not and not just let everything stream in through their phone. And yeah. I, that has not completely gone away. And and I think there's a hunger for the old ways in an, in that it doesn't. I think there's still a progressivism socially. But I think when it comes to like, what do we expect out of life? There's a, there has been a move towards, yeah, well, let's, let's get back to the point where like, I am a person who is productive and, and beneficial to society or to myself, to my family. And, right. uh, 
It's, yeah. So I, I, I think what you're, what you're trying to do is, um, you know, I think there's a real demand for it. I, I think people want to uh, spend, you know, come out for a day or a weekend or, or whatever, and uh, just bang away on an, on a lump lump of iron, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, weave weave some wool, or you know, do some of this stuff. That these are traditions that have that have been really going on for, I mean, obviously hundreds, but in in some of these cases, some of the stuff has really has been going on relatively unchanged for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a huge connection to our past by being able to to carry on these traditions, you know, you think of, you see these A&E videos of like, oh, this is the last, the last blank of, of the uh, ever. And it's like, well, like once that person goes, if no one learns how to do that, eventually 50, a hundred, 200 years from now, when someone decides they want to try that, just like we sometimes find when we're recreating medieval uh, activities, we're like, we're going to have to invent it from the ground up. And that's just, it's a, such a waste of, of generational knowledge. It would be nice to be able to bring some of that back in a dedicated space where people have access to that regardless of their life circumstance. And I think that's really important too, is when you talk about, oh, I've, and travel is obviously an issue. I can't fix travel. You know, not every, you know, just because your Seattle apartment isn't going to be any closer to the Midwest than a Seattle yeah. house with a room for a forge, right? But there's a lot of people who deserve access to some of this stuff and it doesn't, they're never going to have be able to buy acres and acres of land to do it on their own. And I would like to see people be able to participate in some of these activities that I know that they would, it would actually enrich them as a human being if they were able to access it. And I don't see why they shouldn't. Obviously it requires time and logistics and administration but that's what i've agreed to do as picking up this this kickstarter like i'm taking that on as my contribution and then you know going from there right so okay so let's let's get this into perspective here so obviously you're not gonna single-handedly build a castle in a a walled city or whatever and with a farm and fields and all that but um your uh step one is to uh, create, uh, uh, sorry, what, what were you calling? Uh, it's a, it, a I'm co- calling it a foundation. foundation. Yeah, a foundation. Yeah. So it's actually, so I I've already consulted with an attorney about a number of different angles on the best way, the safest way to conduct an operation like this, because one of the key things that I think has been the failure of, I'm going to do a medieval village project. You know, I know of at least two or three villages that popped up and then have gone away for various different reasons. And one of those reasons is that you get some guy and he buys land and he wants there to be a medieval village there. And either it's under the auspices of other people coming or, you know, they're like, well, this is something that I want and I can provide. So other people can use it sometimes, but effectively you got these, you know, we talked about little fiefdoms where Mm -hmm. it just becomes do you know this person? Is this person willing to let you on the land? And we see problems wherein, okay, the insurance is too high or they lose their job or their job moves them to a different part of the country. And then all of the time, work and labor and materials that are put into this area get yanked out from the people who want to use it. And it's not widely accessible. You know, it's very right. much accessible to that person's social group. Or you have people who want to do it a little more commercialized, but the more commercialized you get, the less opportunity there is for those long-term projects that 
that are hindered by the interference of modern groups and modern events and, and right. things like so that. You're, so you're talking about basically setting up like a nonprofit society where there will be a group of people that will be able to sustain membership and have a long-term, um, well, long-term investment, long-term um, uh, commitment to seeing this project through from, from its um, sort of a, right now it's just an idea. Um, yeah. And obviously it's going to take many years to, to actually build something like this. So I think right. that that's a I have idea. a five year plan for now uh, to get the core buildings done, but it does start with a foundation and that is a not-for-profit organization. And that's what decouples <clears> it from just like some guy who has land. And it actually, you're able to take these strictly worded articles of incorporation and bylaws that force anyone who is running the project to maintain it up to the ideals that I'm setting now. Cause as much as I'd love to be uploaded to the cloud and live forever, realistically at some point I can't be the person in charge of this forever. I will, I will grow old and I will either be too infirm to do so, or I will die. And it needs to be able to be multi-generational because an idea like this doesn't work if it's just a way to make me money or to give me a place to play my game. And then once I'm done playing, it's over. And an incorporation allows it to be multi-generational and it allows other people to take on the reins and continue. And so this becomes a legacy project that goes from through the community uh, and is held by the community. And the, the question of you know, what are the ways that we can do this is membership. Um, another way we can do it is uh, what I like to call sustainable budgeting in that. And that's what this main Kickstarter is looking to prove is that if we can amass an, an, an endowment and run it more like the way that a uh, like a, a not-for-profit foundation does a lot of their charitable works in that they will take the the investment return and make that their operating budget then we don't have to nickel and dime the people who spent all their money on wool and armor who then spent who knows how many days traveling to the event because they're coming from far away and then they can they have access to it and we don't have to start making these compromises the biggest concern that i have and what seems to be the downfall of many of these other projects is when they start to concede to the needs of the corporate for-profit motives either one person gets greedy or you have it actually be a corporation where there's an obligation to the stakeholders to make money or you overreach and you take on a lot of debt in an attempt to like build something super fast and then it crumples under its weight the moment you have a really dry season because you know you just don't have a lot of tourism that summer that's what happened to the ozark fortress is that it was entirely profit and attraction based it was it was a theme park effectively and when the tourism dipped it had to shutter and so um, i want to look for i'm looking for grants and not-for-profit charitable programs that's why the not-for-profit status is so important and 501c 501c3 may or may not be an option i've i've been going back and forth on the attorney with this about whether or not the very insular focus kind of fails to achieve that for the the public good aspect but being able to eventually get charitable donations would be fantastic but my goal here is to say okay this is a community resource that the community wants to 
I know they want because every time I sit around a campfire and we talk about having a medieval village, everyone's like, rah, rah, rah. And every time I, I speak about this to other people online, they're like, oh, that would be great. I can't wait to see something like this happen. Uh, but you have to be slow and steady and you have to have a clear, articulate plan, which is why I have, uh, I don't remember how many pages long the, the PDF I have that I've, I've been trying to work with like corporate sponsors and and get some partnerships with people who are big in the industry for the things that people buy. Um, the idea being, okay, maybe we can, you know, work out some deals for maybe some of the, the material culture on site. Uh, obviously, uh, anytime we have anything like a presentation with specific sponsors can get, you know, their, they get pitched their, Hey, these are our sponsors. Here's their names. You love them. You want to buy from them, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so, uh, but the key is that I think I've noticed that a lot of people that I talk to from the like don't the large donation side, not the, Hey, can I have $25 for my Kickstarter side? But like, Hey, you're, you're a big organization. Can I have a commiserately large donation from you or, or reoccurring support from you as a sponsor? They worry that there isn't a market for this, that it's, it's kind of like a pipe dream. Everyone says they, they would like it, but no one really wants to put in the work to make it happen. And so I was like, okay, well the work part, like I'll do it. Like the works, I'm happy to do the work. Um, so if we can get this Kickstarter funded, then we can show them that, hey, yeah, like uh, $25,000 worth of people in our community across the whole country are ready to be like, hey, let's make this happen. Let's start exploring options to get the bigger bucks in, the larger fish in, or the whales right. or whatever nomenclature you want to use. And right. so this proof of concept is very important to establishing that social proof that this is more than just an idea. Yeah. So once you have a foundation, then you can have official committees and subcommittees and whatnot. And then now you can approach uh, the whales with, a, hi, I'm, this is our committee. Can We would like to meet with you instead of, hi, I'm a random guy that you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> just say, and that's the thing, like, and, and I have gotten the people who are like, hey, just so you know, you're just some random guy and they've done, they've been nice about it. Right. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that is both the sub and supra text is that, you know, like, who are you and why, why should we care? What's official about this? And you talk about this sort of realness that you can cloak the whole thing in. And that's why one of my largest, my, my highest spending tier reward on the Kickstarter is actually one of those honorary offices that we can use to give people buy-in. Like I have the, I have a draft of the Articles of Incorporation, which obviously needs to be reviewed by an actual attorney. And that's going to be uh, I, the guy I've been talking with at uh, the law firm who does a lot of, of business and is one of the few who was like, not immediately like, uh, I don't know if I want to talk to you about this because there's been a yeah. lot of attorneys that are like, this is weird and I don't care. And then yeah. they're like, they don't want to talk to me. But this guy is interested in in working with me. He thinks he understands uh, what's and he's not a reenactor himself, but like he, he kind of gets where I'm going. And he says that, you know, because we want it to be multi-generational and because we want it to stay in a very narrow uh, borderline written bylaw altruism, right, that it's going to be there's going to probably be a, a hefty bill to finally get it written and submitted. And so that attorney's fee is going to be a huge part of what we're raising money for. And but one of the things that I think that I can get incorporated is that we have all these and model them after uh, 
positions that were in a medieval town. So like in bailiff and alderman and, and things like that in city council. Oh, yeah. But we have these offices that are in the corporate structure. So we can actually bring people into the fold and they can actually, you know, they can physically work as part of, as they you know work or not work, they can be named members of the, and being named members, like you said, get you on committees and things. And then from those committee members, we can start developing the next generation of governors and presidents and all the all the internal structures. We can really we have this this way to kind of filter people into the fold. Um, those who are really interested in doing the, the more boring side of it, which is, you know, I, I've had the problem here of trying to sell the spreadsheets and, and stuff where it's like, that's the boring stuff. Like yeah. the legalese is not fun. Admit it. You know, st strong fiduciary sound, basic yeah, planning. It's, and it's like, this is all the boring stuff where people tune out and you know, the, everyone but, wants to really break the ground. <laughs> but look at uh, even look at game of Thrones. Like how many scenes were they literally just having a board meeting? Like yeah, so no, that's many. what the small council is. It's yeah, just exactly. the board of directors for the king. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I. But I, I think George R. R. Martin made it a little more exciting than our typical board meeting will end up being. But you know. <laughs> I don't know. I've been to a a lot of board mm. meetings myself, and some of them are pretty exciting. Hopefully, there's a little less murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe less murder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to cover? No, I mean, those those are the, the major points. I appreciate the opportunity to share, like really get into the nuts and bolts of the goal. I, I have a number of videos that I've filmed to try and be a companion to the narrative on Kickstarter. But uh, there's a lot of people who have seen what was done before and assume this is going to, to be done one of those ways. And they right. they it's hard to get to communicate to people that no look like that's exactly the same fear I had of something being done wrong again is why I've taken these great pains to do it different. But then of course the, the catch 22 is, Oh, well people are only interested when you break ground, but you can't break ground until you get enough people who are financially interested and invested to move forward. Because when you run off half cocked and just buy land and hope for the best, then we've seen that fail over and over and over again so i really hope that people appreciate the slow and steady and and longer form conversations like this are a really great way to 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 get into that type of conversation yeah for sure well i i think your i think your approach is very sound and um and i think that your your kickstarter you know is is really um just looking at one step that really needs to happen and if if that step doesn't happen then the rest of it's not going to happen. And so this is kind of, you know, it's, it's important. I mean, you can, you can go ahead and commit your life to, to a thing and then find out that, Oh, sh you know, why didn't I, I, as they say, as they used to say at church, count the cost. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, which is like basically just pre-planning. Um, yeah. And so this is, this is, I think a really uh, strong feature that I see in in your project is that that's really all this is 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 pre-planning for an even uh, uh, bigger project and who knows what that project might even eventually look like i'm sure you probably have some ideas but um like you might be long gone before they before by the time things uh get well, i mean hopefully not but you know what i mean it's it's, yeah, it's, take it's a possible while for, sure it'll grow it'll change 
and and but then at the same time, if we if we do our due diligence ahead of time, like I said, front load a lot of that work in de- establishing and demanding a specific corporate culture and a, a vision and and a plan and a guide and a guidance, like a vision, as you said, to get to a specific end. Then re- even when I'm in a position where I had pass it on to the next person, I know that it's going to move in a direction that is healthy for the community, which is that's what this is all about. And I've really been focused on the, the, my very niche community for most of my, my public reenacting, you know, starting in 2016, when I did my uh, turnip of terror uh, website and blog, it was all about bringing resources to the community. And when I expanded the website to be a groups list and a resource list and a vetted merchant list, like again, most of the things I do, online even when it comes to doing silly tiktok videos is to to prove to the community that we can be for that we can be part of modern culture and that we are still relevant and that the that people care about the correct aesthetics that they work so hard you know people will spend countless hours working on garments and then watch a movie which effectively says okay well everyone's just covered in mud and and no one no one dressed in good color and it's like well it's not directly invalidating their work but it's also i think it's important for for people to see the the correct work and the history and research they put into things get highlighted in you know quote television and and so everything from the television i try to to create to the resources i put online for people to make their journey into learning reenactment easier to this is all about being the tide that raises all boats for my community. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up the whole, the, uh, I love what you just said a moment ago, and I'm going to, I'm going to take, put words in your mouth, at which you can quote me on, because this is going to be a great soundbite. Uh, sustainable LARPing requires solid corporate governance. I'll How take like it. That? I okay. like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, Again, this is this is an awesome project. Um, the link is going to be right underneath this video. Well, actually, in fact, I might even be able to put it right on the video. Uh, but it's at um, it's at Kickstarter. Uh, you call it the Turnip of Terror Medieval Village, and uh, look for the link below. Go uh, check it out. And um, you guys are going to want to get involved in this thing on the ground floor. And this thing is going to be really awesome. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Ari. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again later. Thanks for having me on. You bet. See you later.